Well, good morning and welcome again. Um, I've got a couple of warnings for you before we get into the scripture. Number one, uh, in studying this text, Matthew chapter 14, I absolutely fell in love with Jesus in a whole new way. Reminded of his goodness and his faithfulness. So I am really, really, really fired up to preach. <laughs> because this text meant so much to me this week. I, I, I you know... Y- y- you know, you read the Bible, and there's times like, man, that's good. And then there's times you just kind of are floored a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that happened to me this week. So somebody after the first service, actually an elder, asked, hey, man, did you come up for air in those first ten minutes of the sermon? That's warning number one, all right? Warning number two, we're going to do some deep theology stuff today. We're going to do some deep Bible stuff today. It might even feel like a seminary classroom at times in here. So, uh... Fair warning. You were warned. Don't walk out of here and say, he didn't warn us, I warned you. Okay? Last thing is, I want to talk about this this morning. Matthew chapter 14, as we conclude our series called Take Heart, this last statement we're going to look at, Take Heart, for two reasons. One, because I absolutely love Jesus so much. And number two, I really love you a lot. And the truth that is in this book will change your life. It will radically transform your life for the better. And I love you and I love Jesus. And so I want to connect those two things so that your life has changed. Let's pray. Oh God, you are king, you are good. That is our heart's desire. That's the cry from within us, God, from the very depths of our being that you would transform us today. God, even as we kind of get on a quick pace through this sermon, God, even as we read large chunks of scripture together, would you focus our minds and focus our hearts that we would see you in all your glory and power. We still our hearts before you, O oh God, and we just ask that you would speak. In Christ's name, the people of God together said, Amen. We begin with the character of God. We're talking about God, who he is. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses has a conversation with God, and God tells Moses, you go tell old Pharaoh to what? Let my people go. Some of you wanted to even sing that with me, all right? And so God says to Moses, you go tell the nation of of Egypt that has enslaved my people, you've got to let them go. And God is in a burning bush that's not consumed. And Moses takes off his sandals. He's standing on holy ground. And he asks the question that probably you and I would ask. When I go tell old Pharaoh to let my people go... Who should I say sent me? He says, God, what is your name? Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In Hebrew, God tells Moses, Eye asher eye. It literally means, I am 
who I am. For every Israelite, for every member of the nation of Israel, for every Jew, that one statement, Eye Asher Eye, I am who I am, came to represent everything that they knew about this great God of glory. So in the morning, when the when the father of each house would walk outside of his door and he would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In his mind, he thought, we are worshiping Eye Asher Eye. I am who I am. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah writes this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, those are angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. That's aye, asher aye. I am who I am. God on high. Revelation chapter 4. I know it's New Testament, but give me a break here. This is the, this is the concept of God. Revelation 4 verse 2. At once I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight." And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created picture this angels beasts things that we can't even fathom and imagine around a throne with peals of thunder and lightning and just stuff going crazy and all they do all the time they never cease to say holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. That's the I am who I am. Eye asher eye. He is independent. That means he needs no one or nothing to exist. He is infinite in space. He's eternal in time. He's beyond human understanding. He's supreme, sovereign, transcendent. That means he's above and beyond us. He is, he is majestic. He is everywhere present, all-knowing, all-powerful, and unchanging. 
He is the definition of holiness, wisdom, truth, love, goodness, and faithfulness. He is mercy. He is kindness. He is justice, righteousness, and grace. There is nobody like him. He is exalted above the highest heavens. There is nothing we can compare to God. He is the one who spoke and there was light and life and breath. He is the creator of all things. He is the upholder of all things. By his very word they exist and by his will they sustain sustain their existence he is glorious beyond compare there is none like God I am who I am fast forward a thousand years or so after Moses and about 70 according to history and tradition about 70 scholars got together and translated the Hebrew text into Greek about 300 years before Jesus, because most of the nation of Israel, many in the nation of Israel, were speaking Greek by this time. So they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into New Testament Greek, or into Greek. Again, 300 years before Jesus. The Septuagint is what it's called. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Everybody with me? They translate this, Eye Asher Eye, I am who I am, into this word right here ego emi there it is in the greek there it is in the transliteration so that you can pronounce it with me ego emi ego emi say it again say it again we're repeating it because it's absolutely mission critical to the text we're going to look at today this one phrase, eye asher eye in Hebrew and ego emi in Greek, came to represent everything that we just established about God. I am who I am. Ego emi. His nature, his character, his holiness and wisdom and grace, his power beyond compare, his majesty. All wrapped up in one phrase. I am who I am. In Greek, ego, amy. We'll be in Matthew chapter 14 today. The passage starts with John the Baptist being beheaded. John the Baptist was Jesus' first cousin. One of his closest friends, likely. And so Jesus wants to grieve and mourn the loss of a friend and family member. The scripture tells us that Jesus gets in a boat and goes to where he thinks is going to be a desolate place. But when he gets to this desolate place, there's a crowd there to meet him. And they think, wow, Jesus is here. We need some stuff from him. And says that Jesus has compassion for them. And he puts aside his grieving just for a moment. And he heals their sick. And then when they don't have anything for dinner, he feeds them. Because that's our God, compassion. But Jesus still needs to grieve. So when he's done caring for this crowd of people that are waiting for him in what he thought was a desolate place, he dismisses the crowd, he dismisses his disciples, and he thinks, finally, I can get alone and grieve. Matthew chapter 14. If you have your Bibles open to it. If not, there's a scripture up here on the screen. There's a Bible in front of you in that seat back. You can pick that up as well. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He's getting alone to grieve. When evening came, he was there alone, verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So here's what happens. Jesus feeds these guys dinner. He dismisses the crowd, and then he tells his disciples, get into the boat and go to the other side, and I'll meet you there. I love the original language here because Jesus says, you guys get in, go, now. Boop, gone. He doesn't say, well, maybe it would be a good idea. He's like, get in and go. He says, I've got to get alone and grieve the loss of this friend and family member. Verse 23 says that when evening came, Jesus was on the mountain alone. We don't have like a real specific time for evening, but in this day they did. Evening was right at sunset. That's when Jesus was there alone. When evening came, when sunset hit, he was there alone. Latest possible sunset in that area of the world latest possible sunset was 750 earliest possible sunset was 450 are you with me so if he dispatches the disciples if he says y'all get out he didn't say y'all get out of here go to the other side and i will meet you there he did it before sunset the latest possible time he would have told them to get into the boat was 730 that's the latest possible Could have been even 3 or 4 in the afternoon. But latest possible time would have been 7.30. Number two, based on the geography that the Bible gives us, the disciples started in Bethsaida and they ended in Gennesaret, which is about 5 miles. It's up on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. I talked to Mark this week. Mark's a big, uh, he, he loves a canoe. I said, Mark, how long, will it take you, how long would it take you to canoe about five miles, about eight kilometers? How long would that take you? He said, that would probably take me at a brisk pace about an hour. But there are 12 guys in this boat. They're all professional fishermen. This is what they do every day. And Mark tells us that they have oars. This should not have taken them very long to get from Bethsaida to Gennesaret. Keep reading, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Stop there. Let's talk timeline. Latest possible time they could have got on the water was 7.30. Fourth watch of the night in Jewish uh, timing and mindset, there's only three watches. Matthew is using Roman timing. So in the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus shows up on the water. So if he shows up at the very beginning of the fourth watch, these guys have been on the water for seven and a half hours. From 7.30 to 3 o'clock in the morning, it says that the waves were beating against the boat. They were straining against the oars. The wind was against them. The reason it took them longer than it should have was because they fought tooth and nail the whole time. The least amount of time, the least possible amount of time they have been on the water is seven and a half hours. They could be on the water for 12, 13, 14, even 15 hours based on when sunset happened, when Jesus dismissed them, and what point in the fourth watch he showed up. Seven and a half at the very least. Here's what we know. These guys are beat. They're scared. In his gospel, Mark tells us that they're straining against the oars. They are aware that death may be imminent. They have absolutely nothing left. They are whipped. And so picture it with me. One of the disciples, maybe one of the lesser known, Philip, Bartholomew, something like that, right? Says, 
I see something. Like, like, a, like a figure out on the sea. Like a, like a silhouette, like an outline of a person. I don't, I don't know what it is. Pick it up in verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now the next thing that happens in this story is great. Because Peter says, hey, if it's you, call me out on the water and I'll come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and walks towards Jesus. Anybody heard that story before? You heard about the Peter walking on the water thing? Good, good, five of you, outstanding. That's awesome. Poetry, songs, sermons, you name it, written about Peter walking on the water. But we can't skip by this statement that Jesus makes. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, because it's absolutely mission critical. This is the climax of the text. This is the crux of the text. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. We know what take heart is. We know what do not be afraid is. Look at that phrase, it is I. I will give you two guesses as to what that is in the Greek. You will probably only need one. What is it? Ego, me. Take heart. I am who I am. Do not be afraid. In case you missed it, Jesus is making a very clear, not confused claim to divinity here. There would have been no question in the disciples' mind as to what Jesus was claiming. No second guessing. No, man, he's a great prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a godly man. He knows a lot. None of that stuff. Jesus says, take heart. Ego emi. I am who I am. Do not be afraid. Psalm 77 and Job 9 says only God walks on the sea. And Jesus walks on the sea. Psalm 148 says the storms do his bidding. In just a couple moments here, Jesus is going to sit down in the boat and calm the storm. He is claiming and proving that what we just read in Isaiah and what we just read in Revelation has come in the flesh. I am who I am. Ego, me, And this is absolutely the crux of our faith. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. That the God of the universe became a man. Jesus was the God man. If you believe in God at all, if you're a theist, I don't care like what kind of spiritual religious background you come from, or even if you like don't come from a faith background at all, if you think, ah, there, yeah, I believe in God, I would, I would say I, I'm a theist. I, I believe in God. We could probably agree, no matter what background you come from, I'm a Christian, obviously, uh, if I wasn't, they wouldn't let me work here. Okay, so, um, but, but, but we're going to disagree on a lot of stuff, but if you're a theist, we'll, we'll probably agree on two things. One, that God is bigger than you and me. God is bigger than you and me. If you're a pantheist, you would say that God is everything. If you're a panentheist, you would say that God is in everything. If you're Islam, that God is great. Islam says that God is 
great. God is bigger than you and me. If, if you come from a Hindu background, that concept of Brahman, it's not a personal God, but it's definitely a greater consciousness, something bigger and badder out there. Not badder, something greater and bigger out there. Just that simple statement to say, I believe in God, even if you don't affiliate with religion at all, I believe in God indicates that you would accept the reality of a divine being that is greater and bigger and altogether different. That's what we say when we say, I believe in God. He is bigger than you and me. The second thing that we could probably agree on is this, that there is something about me, something, about who I am, about what I've done, about how I think, about how I process the world around me that has disconnected me from that God. And, and, and something about me has disconnected me from him. So that's why every major world religion tries to solve that problem. Hinduism says you've got to have con- continuous reincarnations to reconnect with the divine. The New Age says, look into yourself, meditate, reflect, do yoga, watch Oprah, whatever, and you will reconnect with the divine. Buddhism says nirvana is blowing out the flame of sensual desires, overcoming oneself in order to avoid endless reincarnations and reconnect with the divine. Islam says follow the five pillars, do those religious duties and obligations in order to reconnect with the divine. What I call religionism, because it kind of just a broad stroke brush, of go to church, do these things, do these activities, pray. Do the religious stuff and you'll reconnect with the divine. Moralism says do more good stuff than bad and you will reconnect with the divine. Almost anyone out there who's a theist would say those two things. God is bigger than you and me and something has disconnected me from him. Here's what Christianity says. Nearly every world religion and every individual on the planet that's a theist is trying to answer the question, how do I bridge the gap between me and God. Christianity says, that's the wrong question. There's no answer to that question because it's the wrong question. Christianity says that God made his way to me in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, ego e me, I am who I am, become flesh and dwelt among us. I am just gonna read you what the scripture says about him. Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That means God with us. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The book of Hebrews says he is the radiance, that's Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The book of John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, that's Jesus, was in the beginning with God, eternal in time and space. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians, my favorite one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, in, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ego, me. I am who I am. No good prophet. Yeah, he was a good prophet. He's a good teacher. But he claimed, ego eimi, I am who I am, God in the flesh. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. C.S. Lewis called it the greatest miracle of the scriptures. He says, once you believe the idea of the incarnation, all the other miracles are easy. That's the most unbelievable. That I am who I am would come down and become a man. Ego eimi. And what do we do typically with things that we don't understand? We try to fit them in our little boxes and our little gaps and we start to make up stories to help us understand it, right? And that's what the church, well, heretics in the church, have been doing for 2,000 years. In the early church, it was Apollinarianism. said that Christ had a human body, but a divine mind and a spirit. Nestorianism said two persons, one divine and one human, lived within a single body. Monophysitism said that one nature, God has, or Jesus had one nature, but it's kind of half and half, half God, half man. And the church fought against these heresies, these these attempts to rip God down off of his throne, put him to test over our scrutiny and say, there is no way that the I am became a man, so I've got to figure out something else. And the church says, nope, this is what the scripture affirms. This is him. Ego eimi, I am who I am. God become flesh. So in 451, the Council of Chalcedon got together, the group of of leaders in the early church in the 5th century, and said, we affirm what the scriptures have always affirmed. Here's what they wrote. Jesus was consubstantial of the same substance with the Father according to the Godhead. And he was consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeable, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of nature is being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the prosperity or property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you just totally checked out like five words in. Some of you are like loving that. Oh, church councils, that's great. That's awesome. I love that. Okay, so for those of you who didn't love that, here's what the council said. Ego eimi. I am became flesh. 
Not two, not God and a man, not like a half and half thing, you know, like a lion with a horse's head or something like that. <laughs> this, is, this is not what happened. God on high, all that we established about him, majestic, glory beyond compare, became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. There's modern heresies, modern misunderstandings of this all over the place. We kind of mentioned them already, but like, oh, Jesus is a really good prophet, but he's not the son of God, he's not God in the flesh. Or Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good teacher. He's a great teacher. But that wasn't it. Ego me, God in the flesh. He's a great example. I follow my, I, I, I try to, WWJD, buddy, I try to do what Jesus does. He's a great example. He's an absolutely outstanding example. You know why? Because he's God in the flesh. You cannot stop there with he's a good prophet, he's a good teacher, he's an example. I know they all sound benign at worst. They sound even positive and biblical at best. But the Bible never, never intended to leave those options open. Jesus never intended to leave those options open that he was a good prophet, a good teacher, a good example, and that's it. You know why? Eho emi. I am who I am. God in the flesh. He claimed it in Matthew 14 and he proved it in Matthew 14 by walking on the sea, calming the storm, and that became the pattern of his life to prove he was the I am. Incarnate Son of God. I had a good friend in high school, uh, still a friend. Um, we were close, we were in Bible studies together and stuff like that. And about our sophomore year of college, he started acting kind of funny and, um, you know, kind of scattered and talk about different stuff and kind of trail off a little bit. It's like, listen to me preach sometimes, I know. But, um, but, but we got concerned about him because the stuff he was saying was like, man, what in the world is going on here? And, and so he started to teeter over that edge into kind of into mental illness. And not just teeter over that edge, but he kind of fell off the cliff of mental illness. And so eventually, he started to claim of himself that he was the risen Christ, God in the flesh, come back to judge the living and the dead. And I thought, man, I was in Bible studies with you. Like, and like, you're not nearly as good at basketball as I think God would be, you know, so, so something doesn't make sense here. By the way, just so you know, he's doing great now. He's pursuing his PhD in English, he's married, he's got a kid, and he worships Jesus. He worships Jesus, God's only son, God incarnate. But at the time, at the time when he started to make these claims, we had a decision to make, didn't we? We had a decision to make. We couldn't say, well, you really don't mean it. He meant it. We could either say, yeah, we agree with you, you're, you're God incarnate, and we're going to worship you accordingly. Or we could say, you're deliberately deceiving us, you know what you're saying is a lie, and you're deliberately deceiving us, so we're not going to be friends anymore. Or, and this is what we did, we said, you're crazy. You're crazy, so we're going to get you into a professional psychiatric situation so that you can get on some medication and work through counseling. Because this is not true of you. Friends, when Jesus says, ego, me, I am who I am, I know it, I know it looks kind of, you know, it is I. He's making a claim that he is Yahweh. 
He is Eye Asher Eye. He is God in the flesh. We have a decision to make. Good prophet, good teacher. Those aren't options anymore because of what Jesus claims of himself. Let's talk about our response to God incarnate. Let's talk about our response to Jesus, the I am in the flesh. And I want to take a cue from Peter and the rest of the disciples. I know that Peter isn't exactly perfect here in the text. If you know Peter, if you know him at all, you're probably not surprised that he's not perfect. Uh, That's why I love Peter, because he's not perfect. But at the very least, they realize what they're dealing with. To the best of their ability, they understand what Jesus is claiming. They understand what he's proving. Their knowledge was limited, but their response in the face of limited knowledge proves a great example for you and me when we are faced with ego emi. Let's look at their response. Verse 28. Jesus calls Peter out on the water, and Peter answered him, or Jesus says, Take heart, it is I, ego emi. Do not be afraid. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, You are the Son of God. When we're faced with ego emi, when we're faced with the I am in the flesh, when we're faced with Jesus of Nazareth, not just a good prophet, not just a good teacher, not just a good man, not just a good example, here's how we respond. We take a cue from the disciples. Number one, we respond with obedience despite difficulty. If you're taking notes down, jot that down. My response to God incarnate is obedience despite difficulty. Remember, these guys have been out on the water for seven and a half hours at the least, for maybe 13, 14, 15 at the most. This should not have taken them that long. It probably should have taken them less than an hour. They've been straining at the oars. They're afraid for their lives. And Jesus says to Peter, what? Come. Like, if I'm Peter, I mean, I probably think, you're nuts. Like, we've been, we've been working through this all night. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? He said that before. Like, come out onto the water. Like, we can barely keep the boat up. And you're asking me to come out on the water. But because Peter was faced with ego and me, he was faced with God in the flesh, he got out of the boat and walked towards the Savior. He obeyed Jesus despite difficulty. What's the one thing that God is calling you to do and you're saying, no way? What's the one thing in your life that, that, gosh, if, if God called me to do that, I would say, no way or in the back of my mind I know he is I know he's saying come out onto the water come out into the mystery come out into the difficulty walk towards me 
draw near to me? Is he calling you into global missions overseas? Obey despite difficulty. Is he calling you to be a sacrificial giver? Obey despite difficulty. Is he calling you to get up earlier in the morning so you can get into his word and pray? Obey despite difficulty. When Jesus calls, we respond because he is God in the flesh. Even when it's dangerous, even when we're tired, even when it doesn't seem reasonable, he is the God man so we can take heart and obey despite difficulty. Number two, our response is a resolute focus on Jesus, the God man. A resolute focus on Jesus. Think back on the text a little bit here. Remember Jesus, when he dismisses the disciples, he says, go on ahead of me. In Mark, it says that Jesus says, I will meet you at the other side. So when they see somebody walking on the water, what should they have thought? Well, there he is. He said he was going to show up. There he is. And what do they think? It's a ghost. They're afraid. They're terrified. Why? Because they weren't looking for him, even though he promised he would meet them there. They weren't looking for him. Jesus uses this word when he says, oh, you of little faith. He uses this word, oligopistos. It means you're allowing the material facts to weigh more heavily than the power of Jesus. You have little faith. So even when Peter finally steps out of the boat, what he saw with his physical eyes, wind and waves, became greater in his mind than what he saw with his faith-filled heart. And what did he see with his faith-filled heart? Ego emi. Our response to the I am in the flesh is a focus on him. He promised he would meet you. He's going to show up. And then when you step out of the boat, you keep your eyes on him. The author and perfecter of your faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. He is not just a good teacher, not just a good prophet. He is ego emi. He is God in the flesh. He is the I am. And so our focus at all times has got to be on him and him alone. Number three, we respond with an undivided heart. An undivided heart. When Jesus asked Peter this question, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This word doubt is really interesting. It, it kind of means, why is your mind divided? Why is your spirit divided? Why is it divided between faith in me that caused you to step out and fear of the wind and waves? After taking a fir the first few steps of a treacherous journey, Peter's heart and mind became divided between fear and faith, and that's what causes him to falter. And yet, when he falters, Jesus, Egoimi, the God-man, is right there to save him. Peter represents all Christians who are sometimes caught between faith and fear, between faith and doubt. And in the depth of crisis, when all seems lost, we take a cue from Peter and call on the Savior and find his grace sufficient for our needs, whose power is made perfect in weakness. Where is your heart divided? Where have you struck a, a, 
a rift between faith and fear, between faith and doubt. Is it what the Bible says about parenting? Is it sticking in a tough marriage? Is it plugging in and serving? Is it opening up in community? Is it being honest with people? Do not allow your heart to be divided. Let Jesus ask you this question. Why do you doubt? Why is your heart divided? I am, I am. I'm the God man. Ego me. Do not let your heart be divided. I'm here. I promised I would be. And here I am. We respond with an undivided heart. Number four, we respond with uninhibited worship. Uninhibited worship. Notice that when Jesus gets back into the boat, after calming the storm, after showing up, and these guys have been you know, waiting all night, and they've been fighting all night, and, and they're, they're, they're tired, they're exhausted, they think death is imminent. Notice that when Jesus gets into the boat, what do they say to him? Oh, man, thank you. That was awesome. That was cooler than the feeding 5,000 people thing. That was real cool. Thank you. No. It says the disciples worshipped him. And they said, truly, you are the Son of God. Remember last week, we talked about that God is not worthy of worship for what he does. We thank him for what he does, and we worship him for what? Who he is. You see, the disciples recognized in, in limited knowledge, limited experience. They didn't quite get the full picture yet, but they knew when Jesus said, I am who I am, ego e me, and I walk on water to prove it, and I calm the sea to prove it, they worshipped him. This is why like, we come here on a Sunday morning. This is why we sing these songs. This is why we sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we join the chorus of angels from Isaiah 6. And we join the chorus of the elders from Revelation 4. We sing, holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. You are the Lamb of God, the only one worthy to open the scroll. You are God incarnate, Jesus the Son of God, ego in me. Friends, this is it. This, this, this is life-transforming stuff. When we come to Jesus with an undivided heart and we agree with what he claimed, that he is God. The Bible has some great stuff to say about practical living. We talk about that a lot here. It's got some great stuff to say about the character of God and family and parenting. We talk about that here. You know why we talk about that stuff? Because Jesus is God. So for the atheist that says God does not exist, he does. His name is Jesus. For the agnostic that says God cannot be known, yes, he can. His name is Jesus. For those that say you have to work yourself to God by whatever other things might be, you know, reincarnations and moralism and religionism and whatever else. No, you don't. You know why? Because God worked worked himself to you in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. And you know where he is now? He's exalted on high. He is the I am. From the very word out of his mouth came light and life and breath. He is the I am, and there is nobody like him. 
band and worship team, would you guys just stay where you are? Let's bow our heads just before Jesus. This is not always uh, easy to do in a worship service with a bunch of people, but I'm going to ask you to just sit really still. Every little squeak of the chair and every little move people can hear. Just sit really still. Let's obey what the psalmist says. Let's be still. Let's let our words be few. And know that Jesus is God. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You are the I am. You are ego e me in the flesh. You are God. And we declare it together. Amen.